This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Assistant Professor of Military History here at the Department of Military History, Command and General Staff College. We have a very special presentation today. Uh, in concert with the Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas, we hosted a panel on war crimes in World War II. And the participants were the Deputy Director of DMH, Dr. Mark Gerges, Professor Dr. Mark Hull, and Assistant Professor Dr. Benjamin Schneider. So what you will hear is the audio from that panel, including audience questions and the panelist answers. And if you're curious about the Dole Institute or the lecture series that DMH does there, please check out the show notes where all of that information will be. Enjoy. Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my pleasure to be up here, and uh, this is going to be something new. We've never done a panel here. Uh, we've had a many-year relationship with the Dole Institute, and uh, this will be the first time we're going to do a panel. I do have to say right up front, you may notice there's two people up front, though most of the advertising had three, but our director, Dave Cotter, had uh, another uh, thing come up that he had to go to. Um, if you feel that we've done a bait-and-switch or uh, you know got lured you here under false pretenses, we're going to refund one-third of your entry costs, so please get another lemon bar. The panel today is going to be examining war crimes in World War II, a panel discussion. It's going to be, I think, a little bit different than what you probably expect and what the photograph has here. This panel is going to examine some of the lesser understood aspects of the war crimes during the Second World War. Dr. Benjamin Schneider uh, will be our first presenter. And uh, the way we're going to do this today is each of them will do about 20 minutes um, talking through their subject. And then we'll sit down and then we'll open up the floor and hopefully get a, uh, a, a very good discussion going. Uh, about the topic. But Dr. Benjamin Snyder is an assistant professor in the Department of Military History at the U.S. Army Command General Staff College. He held a fellowship at the U.S. Uh, Navy War College, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, and the U.S. Center of Military History. He received his doctorate from George Mason University uh, in 2019, and his research has appeared in the Journal of uh, Contemporary History and World uh, in War and History. He's currently working on a book manuscript examining the trials of American war criminals for crimes committed in the European theater of the Second World War. Dr. Benjamin Snyder. Thank you. The end of the Second World War was a time for settling accounts in the U.S. Army no less than elsewhere. No wartime observer could deny that it had been characterized by destruction of life on an un unprecedented scale, whether performed with gleeful brutality or detached managerial indifference. Most of the worst of the war had taken place on the eastern frontier of the vastly oversold thousand-year Reich or the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere, although there was little prosperity to be found there. The scope and scale of the atrocities of the Second World War was historically unique, and the butchery fundamentally reshaped international law and military justice. Until the Second World War, there was no expectation in international law that the community of nations might hold tribunals for war criminals, 
and states retained the right to punish or not war criminals in their own ranks as they saw fit. In 1943, the Allied powers issued the Moscow Declaration, stating that those members of the Axis powers responsible for war crimes, quote, will be brought back to the scene of their crimes and judged on the spot by the peoples that they have outraged and pursued to the uttermost ends of the earth to deliver them to their accusers that justice may be done. How this might be accomplished was not clear. There was no existing machinery to investigate and try crimes on such a scale and very little in the way of historical precedent to look for guidance. The task of punishing those responsible for perhaps the greatest crimes in human history was thus an improvised affair, pursued by men who were necessarily amateurs, for no one had ever tried to do such a thing before. But if the Allies were going to demand a comprehensive accounting of individual Axis troops who committed war crimes, they would need to diffuse the inevitable accusation that they were punishing behaviors that were tolerated in their own armies. The US Army took that concern seriously enough that Eisenhower himself sought to preempt it. Uh, 18 July 1945, he sent an order to, to all officers exercising court-martial jurisdiction. His instructions were clear and to the point. You will forthwith cause a thorough investigation to be made into whether enemy prisoners of war have been killed or otherwise mistreated by members of your command, whether instructions have been given leading to such treatment or practices have been condoned, and take disciplinary action where appropriate. It was the single most wide-ranging investigation into atrocities committed by U.S. forces during the war. Every division, corps, army, and army group in the European theater of operations would have to send an accounting of its conduct. Eisenhower was quite clear on both the reason that such an investigation was necessary and the possible consequences if it was not taken seriously. America's moral position would be undermined and her reputation for fair dealing debased, he said, if criminal conduct of a like character by her own armed forces is condoned and unpunished by those of us responsible for defending her. Eisenhower's investigation would be no less an improvisational affair than the broader war crimes trials slated for Axis war criminals. The Army's military justice system was not designed for such a task. It gave almost unilateral authority for trying American war criminals to the commanders of its division, corps, and armies. These commanders were empowered by a long tradition to use military justice as they saw fit to enforce discipline. And if they did not deem it worth their time to try men who may have killed prisoners or enemy civilians, the Army did not feel that this was any great failing. Eisenhower's effort to impose a centralized counting on these disparate commands was thus unprecedented and could not rely on the existing just military justice machinery. It would have to be kludged together out of whatever parts were on hand. It took just six months for the commanders of 75 units to submit their report to the Judge Advocate General's office to compile. On 31 December 1945, Acting Deputy Theater Judge Advocate Charles L. Decker sent his conclusions to Theater Judge Advocate Edward C. Betts. In general, wrote Decker, very few serious incidents are revealed by the reports so far received, and those reveal that, um, and reveal that adequate corrective action has been taken, or it is now too late. The passage of time, the death and departure of witnesses have made it impossible to gather definitive evidence fixing responsibility upon individuals. While there were, quote, numerous reports of serious violations that are adumbrated by rumor and general impression among the men interviewed, in only one case could the investigators give concrete substance to these rumors by uncovering eyewitnesses. However widespread the rumors, Decker gave them little credence, believing that they were, quote, grossly exaggerated, part of the folklore of war, isolated incidents magnified in the retelling. The acting theater judge advocate concurred, noting that, quote, the number of major violations disclosed is, considering the enormous scope of operations in this theater, relatively small, and that all corrective now action now possible has been taken as regards to known offenses. He <clears throat> recommended that the file be considered closed. 
Other officers concurred. The report had not found much, and as one noted, quote, evidence found in the investigation appears vague, and with lapse of time will necessarily become more nebulous and unreliable where it can be obtained at all. Eisenhower and US FET HQ accepted the conclusions of the report, and on Micklewaite's recommendation, let the matter drop without further action. But Micklewaite's executive summary smoothed over some decidedly sharp edges in Decker's assessment of the situation. While Decker believed that most of what he had been able to unearth was rumor and hearsay, with, quote, few serious provable violations, he also laid out why he was not convinced these scattered accounts were a reliable indicator of the Army's conduct. Two principal uh, failings undermine Decker's confidence in the investigation's findings, the late timing of the investigations and the large number of units that had simply declined to participate. Timing of the investigation was perhaps its most serious shortcoming. By waiting until the war's end, the Army had virtually assured a short count. The scarcity of incidents, wrote Decker, is probably to some extent due to the lapse of time between the period when such incidents could have occurred and the date when such investigations were instituted, with the loss of memory or death or departure of witnesses attendant upon such a lapse of time. These problems were endemic to war crimes investigations and trials and felt acutely by members of the military justice system acting mere weeks after an incident, say nothing of months or years. The end of the war added substantially to these problems by ensuring that in addition to those killed and wounded in combat, many soldiers who had fought had already been rotated back to the states or had been mustered out of the army entirely. Beginning in 1944, the army introduced a rotation system to send men who were no longer useful overseas to duties in the continental United States. The system was designed to rotate 1% of the army's total strength per month with preference to those individuals who had been longest in combat or had served under hazardous and severe conditions. This meant that by the end of the war, roughly 15% of the Army's total strength and disproportionately more amongst their combat veterans had been sent back to the US and out of Decker's reach. This problem only became more dramatic after the conclusion of hostilities. The Army's official history of how it organized its ground combat troops noted that an average division lost 6,110 men to redeployment between VE Day and early July, or roughly 43% of its total strength. Its infantry components lost somewhere on the order of 37% of their total strength, as ever, these losses were concentrated most heavily amongst combat veterans. Moreover, entire units were removed from the European theater in preparation for continued combat in the Pacific. One army, three corps, five infantry, and six armored divisions left the theater or dis were disbanded entirely before November of 1945, and so did not provide any information at all about their treatment of prisoners to Eisenhower. The second major problem that Decker identified in the investigation was separate from but intimately connected to the first. This fact that a sizable chunk of the Army had simply declined to participate in it. Indeed, less than two-thirds of the 118 commands with general court-martial jurisdiction would eventually investigate the wartime conduct of U.S. troops. Instead, assigning, instead of assigning independent investigators, Eisenhower simply required each unit to report on its own behavior. It is unsurprising, then, that few commanders reported misconduct in their unit, particularly given that Eisenhower's order emphasized repeatedly that many of these crimes were likely to involve the question of whether officers had ordered or condoned such actions, nor was there any effort to hold anyone's feet to the fire to get results. Decker noted with an air of faint helplessness that, quote, it is unfortunate that no reports will be received from four divisions from which serious incidents had already been uh, reported, and observed that in all but one of those cases, it was the judge advocate general and not the unit's commander that had reported the incident in the first place. These allegations were often extremely serious, and no unit better illustrated this point than the truant 11th Armored Division. Shortly before Eisenhower's investigation began, the division had been implicated in one of the largest spate of massacres committed by US troops during the entire war. 
On 16 June, a technical intelligence report was forwarded to the Judge Advocate General regarding the statement of Max Cohen, who had alleged during the fighting uh, with the division in northern Luxembourg during the Battle of the Bulge that he and his unit had received an order to not to take prisoners. From a period running from roughly 27 to 31 December 1944, Cohen saw four separate massacres where his comrades killed a total of 60 to 80 German POWs near the town of Chinon. While in another smaller instance, he saw two prisoners had turned over to an officer were shot with, quote, no apparent attempt on their part to escape and no reason for the execution, end quote. Cohen believed that the purpose of the killings was, quote, to get revenge because of the execution of American prisoners at Bastogne. Normally an allegation so serious would have generated a detailed investigation, but in this instance, one never materialized. The JAG forwarded Cohen's allegations to the commander of the 11th Armored Division with the intention that, quote, this headquarters will be informed of the results of investigation and of such disciplinary action as may be taken. If the division ever conducted this investigation, no one else seems to have seen it. Roughly a month after the initial request for an investigation, Eisenhower issued his order asking for an army-wide accounting of incidents of prisoner killing. Division submitted a response, but it dealt with only a nine-day period in August of 1945 after the war had already ended. As to the investigation of the massacre during the bulge, Eisenhower's office could not find the copy they were supposed to have received. A tracer sent to the 11th Armored Division requesting a new copy of the report bounced. The division had been disbanded at the end of August and its personnel and records were no longer available. Eisenhower's office requested the information from 3rd Army under whose auspices the 11th Armored Division had fought. Uh, and who should have been informed of the results of the investigation, but were told that their headquarters had, quote, no record of the subject, end quote. It is not surprising. George Patton, the commander of Third Army, wrote explicitly of his intention to prevent the incident from ever coming to light. He recorded in his diary on 4 January 1945 that he had, quote, visited the Third and Eighth Corps and also the 11th Armored Division. Division was very green and took unnecessary losses to no effect. Also murdered 50-odd German men. I hope we can conceal this, end quote. Under any sort of persistent investigation, concealing the killings would have proved challenging for the division and for Third Army. There were many witnesses. Other members of Cohen's unit would also later recount their knowledge of and peripheral involvement in the events as they had occurred, particularly the killings that had been carried out under the watchful eye of the battalion commander in the fields near a farmhouse the Germans had used as a fighting position. Burnett Miller, future mayor of Sacramento, recalled how his commander, Patrick Henry Tancy, quote, just graduated from West Point, ordered the prisoners from the recently taken town lined up and informed his men, I want you to shoot them. Uh, Burnett had the rare wherewithal to object, telling Tansy that his orders were in violation of international law before being yanked aside by a friend and told, this nut will shoot you, you better knock this off. Miller saw about 25 prisoners shot. John Fagg and other infantrymen with the battalion remembered a larger batch of men slated for death with machine guns arranged to shoot 50 or 60 prisoners in two groups on either side of the road. Fagg left before the firing started. The idea of killing some more Krauts didn't particularly bother me, he said, but he didn't want any share of the killing. He was concerned that, quote, Germans hiding in the woods would see this massacre and we would receive similar treatment if we were captured. Numerous other members of the unit also witnessed or admitted to participating in the killing. It would be one thing if the 11th Armored Division was the only one with known cases of serious misconduct hanging over them that did not produce a report before leaving the theater. But no report was produced by, or it seems requested, from the 87th Infantry Division, whose members and possibly commander were responsible for the killing of 22 adolescent Volkssturm near the town of Tombach. Nor did the 45th Infantry Division, whose members uh, 
conducted the massacre of at least 72 prisoners near Biscari Airfield in Sicily and another 20 in the coal yard of the Dachau concentration camp. This is Horace West, responsible for the massacre of about 36 prisoners of war. He is convicted of murder, for which he is held in prison for one year before, under congressional pressure, he is released, turned back to the infantry, and will go on to be a heroic sniper depicted in Stars and Stripes, where he will claim that he has killed another 130 Germans in uh, revenge for a young friend of his who was supposedly killed in combat. Nor did Arthur Callahan's 20th Armored Division, responsible for the murder of at least 10 prisoners immediately after VE Day. This was not because Eisenhower and his office were ignorant of the conduct of these divisions. Both the Callahan and the Tombaugh files have been sent by the Assistant Judge Advocate General for the United States Army to Eisenhower on 21 and 29 June 1945, respectively. Quite possibly the events that had caused Eisenhower to convene his investigation in the first place. Of course, we should not imagine that even if those units had sent a report of their conduct, that it would have amounted to anything. The report from the 42nd Infantry Division, for instance, quote, made no mention of the division's alleged shooting of 16 SS guards at Dachau, as reported by Third Army, end quote. The division's report also failed to make any mention of their involvement in the killing of eight German prisoners near the town of Oberfrommern, a massacre that, as we will see, the army would later conclude had been committed by men of the division's 222nd Infantry Regiment. Nor did the report include any mention of rumors that swirled around the division's other incidents of prisoner killing, some documented by the Army Signal Corps. One incident was rumored to have occurred during the approach to Dachau, at around the same time as the killings in the camp. Members of the 222nd Infantry Regiment engaged a platoon-sized element of SS troops and the dregs of the Third Reich's militia near the town of Vebling, where a German farmer later alleged the regiment had killed some 17 SS prisoners after they came out of the basement of a farmhouse to meet the Americans. A second group met their end near a church not far from the property, bringing the alleged total to 43 dead. A Signal Corps photographer captured what seems to be the aftermath of the killings. His photograph shows an earthen embankment not far from a church with roughly eight bodies, six bunched together in the open, and two more at a slight distance as American troops approach them. The caption is peculiar in the extreme. Quote, in a drive to wipe out German resistance that is obstructing the advance of the 42nd Division, a platoon of infantrymen moves to high ground past fanatical SS troops. Note in the background the unusual position of the dead SS members, end quote. The only thing that is noticeably unusual is how close they are together, almost as if they had been gathered in one spot before being killed. Army cameraman Walter Rosenblum made a similar allegation against the division. He was with the 42nd in Germany when he witnessed the surrender of a small number of SS troopers near Munich. He recalled, quote, I was in the back of a courtyard. I sat down on a long bench against the wall, and it was like a stage set. They put the Germans up against the wall. I was sitting with a single lens IMO up near my eye. There were about three or four Americans with Tommy submachine guns. And then they killed all the Germans, shot them all. I filmed the whole sequence. I was, still wasn't that battle-hardened, and I thought they did the wrong thing. Uncomfortable with what he had seen, he was uncertain what to do with the recording of a massacre. He pondered his options. After some hesitation, he, quote, sent it back to the Army and got back my regular critique. This film could not be screened due to laboratory difficulties, end quote. Despite all of this, the 42nd had maintained in their report to Eisenhower that their unit had not had any incidents, rumored or otherwise, of killing German prisoners, a finding that does not square with the fact that the 42nd Infantry Division turns out to be the American division with the single most surviving documented allegations of atrocities against the Germans in the entire European theater of operations. The 42nd was not the only unit to have edited out some of the less savory aspects of their service. Headquarters 7 Army made passing mention to Decker that the formation had had, quote, one case of mistreatment of prisoners of war, nature not specified. 
This resulted in a conviction by court-martial. The nature of the sentence, not stated. While many units forwarded cases of shooting prisoners to the responsible parties were exonerated or the allegations were determined to be without merit, 79th Infantry Division did not include any mention of the allegations about the possible massacre of 18 prisoners near Drocourt, France, which had been extensively investigated. Moreover, the fact that Eisenhower was specifically interested in cases where instructions were given to kill or mistreat prisoners, uh, the 22nd Infantry Division made no mention of a now infamous paper order dated 21 December 1944 that instructed the 328th Infantry Regiment that, quote, no SS troopers or paratroopers will be taken prisoner, but will be shot on sight. Whether or not these omissions were deliberate, some of them clearly were, others may have been genuine oversights, they do not inspire confidence in the thoroughness of the investigation and of the reports. Eisenhower may have been the supreme commander, but he was either unable or unwilling to enforce his order. The report's authors, moreover, seem to have ignored or downplayed troubling evidence about the overall efficacy of the military justice system in handling war crimes cases. While the investigation uncovered relatively few incidents that had made their way to court-martial, those that were had been, by any reasonable standard, not well handled. Of the nine courts martial the investigation uncovered, three had resulted in what judge advocates themselves considered to be unjustified acquittals. Two more killings had seen convictions, but the defendants were handed sentences of five years or less, one of these deemed inadequate at the time by the division's commander, in an army that mandated capital punishment or life in prison for anyone guilty of murder. In two more, no information whatsoever was available as to the outcome. It was not an inspiring picture. The lack of perturbation about the state of military justice likely reflected a belief that getting courts martialed to convict American soldiers of killing German troops, particularly around the time of the Malmody Massacre or the liberation of the camps, was simply an unrealistic expectation, no matter how much evidence investigators could compile. But Decker's conclusion also reveals how cursory his review of the materials the Army sent for the report was. Indeed, it does not seem that Decker or any of his subordinates ever actually looked at the full report that 7th Army's Inspector General had produced on the killings at Dachau, where members of the 45th and 42nd Infantry Division killed around three dozen prisoners in three separate incidents. Instead, Decker cites, quote, the brief summary account submitted by 3rd Army. As if he had only looked at the executive summary, this might explain why he believed that it was, quote, difficult and perhaps impossible to determine the individuals responsible for the killing, when the full report named seven of them. In fact, the report had multiple perpetrators giving detailed statements on their involvement, motivation, and methods, to say nothing of the Army Signal Corps photographers who had filmed the killings as they occurred. It is scarcely possible to imagine a more airtight case than the one the IG assembled without having had the court personally present for the shootings. And here we go. So this is near, near the site of the boxcar killings. Uh, a lieutenant by the name of William Walsh will force the first four Germans who come out of the camp into a boxcar, shoot them repeatedly with his pistol, leave them for dead, and another American who will confess this to investigators goes in and finishes them off with his M1 Garand. This is the coal yard killings. These are 17 German prisoners who have been killed after that same lieutenant organizes all of the SS troops into the coal yard of the camp, gets a machine gun, and a number of automatic weapons, including a BAR. You can see that's John Lee over there on the right-hand corner with his BAR. They will open fire, killing as many of them as they can before Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sparks of the 157th Infantry Regiment will run out, physically kick the machine gunner off of his weapon, fire into the air, and cease the fire of his soldiers before they can kill any more people. This is a still frame from a filmed recording of the killings, which again were taken by the United States Army Signal Corps. 
Indeed, it seems that all the materials that the various commands sent to Eisenhower were taken at face value without any effort to assess their quality. At no point did Decker or any of the report's authors comment critically or even express any skepticism about what they were given. No units were singled out for sloppy or inadequate materials. No investigations castigated for unwarranted or unfounded conclusions. This was unusual since virtually all our records of investigations or trials of major massacres have some commentary by senior officers about the quality and plausibility of what their subordinates produced. Eisenhower's report was ultimately the barest possible fig leaf for American conduct during the war, both res with respect to the treatment of the enemy and the performance of the military justice system. No one possessed of any familiarity with the Army's internal war crimes cases, Eisenhower included, could, have, could fail to see how badly the report had lived up to its intent. Charles Decker and C.B. Micklewaite's conclusion that U.S. troops had violated international law only rarely and that the Army had done everything possible to bring those responsible to trial was putting the best face on the situation. The Eisenhower report ultimately did not provide a serious accounting of the Army's conduct or the performance of its military justice system. Its only possible use was to ward off potential complaints that the Army was holding German soldiers to a different standard than American ones. The failure of the Eisenhower report was ultimately the failure of the American military justice system. While general indifference to the deaths of a hated foe played a role in the outcome of the report, more damaging was the Army's failure to plan for an inevitable problem. Once war crimes trials for Germans became policy in 1943, the Army needed to put in place machinery necessary for trying its own. This machinery was never built. Until 1945, the Army operated almost unchanged, with military justice serving primarily as an implement of discipline and an instrument of the commander. By the time Eisenhower's attention turned to the problem, it was too late to construct the necessary machinery, and with the passage of time, it was impossible to go back and adjudicate allegations where in many cases all evidence had been lost. All this is understandable. We may lament that the Army did not take this task more seriously, but it is easy to see how the challenges of winning the largest war in human history overshadowed what must have seen at that time a small concern. More damaging, however, was the Army's unwillingness to squarely face up to its failures to live up to the new humanitarian standard in international law. By denying that Americans had committed war crimes in the first place and that the Army's military justice system had proved inadequate to handling those crimes, the Army set the stage for a far more public and damaging failure in Vietnam. However reluctant they may be to do so, Americans must squarely face the legacy of atrocity in their armed forces. They seek to build a military justice system capable of handling war crimes in their ranks. Eisenhower understood, as we must understand, that the moral legitimacy of the United States depends on it. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Uh, our second presenter is Dr. Mark Holm, who's a full professor at the uh, Command and General Staff College, where he teaches both criminal law and history. He earned his doctorate from the University College Cork in Ireland and his Juris Doctorate from Cumberland School of Law. Prior to teaching at CGSC, Dr. Holm worked as a criminal prosecutor and also as a, served as a military intelligence officer in the United States Army. His books include Irish Secrets, German Espionage in Wartime Ireland, in Masquerade, Treason, Holocaust, Nile, and an Irish Imposter. Uh, he's the author of excuse me, numerous articles and reviews of topics ranging from prosecuting war crimes to military intelligence. He's an elected fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a fellow at the National Institute of Military Justice. I need to mention also, he's also a student again. He has just submitted a second dissertation to, uh, to the Doctorate of Law program at Frederick uh, Alexander University in Nuremberg. Germany, where he studied the topic of incitement as a crime against humanity. 
Uh, he's today going to examine the power of media in World War II era Germany and inciting extermination, the role of anti-Semitic media in the Holocaust. What I want to do today, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story and work my way into the topic that way. So my COVID project was this, as Mark uh, had suggested. I wanted to look at a particular aspect of incitement as it ties into crimes against humanity. And the first place to start with anything like this is the Nuremberg trials. Those trials go on from late 1945. Uh, the verdicts are delivered the 1st of October, 1946. One of the defendants at Nuremberg, Julius Stryker, who's the guy on your left-hand screen there, is con uh, uh, indicted and convicted for crimes against humanity. And his job during the 1920s and 1930s and throughout the Second World War was he was sometime a Gauleiter of Nuremberg, but more specifically, he published a newspaper called Der Stürmer. Stürmer, uh, it, it, people sometimes translate it as Stormer. It, it really, it's not, that's not what it means here. It means agitator. Stryker is a lifelong monomaniacal anti-Semite. He publishes a newspaper that, that has a circulation of about 400,000 copies a week. A lot of those copies are purchased by the Nazi party. They're distributed free of charge. You could not go into a German city of almost any size without seeing a display cabinet with, with glass fronting so that the population would be almost, you know, have to walk by and see these things that Stryker published. He has lengthy editorials um, that delve into a faux German, you know, history and mysticism. And every one of these, almost without exception, is centered on the idea that the Jews are an ancient evil and that they must be removed from German society. They're not real Germans. They're not real people. Um, the themes are almost pornographic in some cases uh, that the Jews are involved in a worldwide conspiracy. It's every anti-Jewish trope that has ever been put together by anybody you could have found in the pages of Der Sturmer every week, like clockwise, from the 1920s through 1945. So he, the prosecution idea of with Stryker is that through his newspaper and the material contained inside of it to include images as well as the speeches must have contributed toward the poisoning of German society, which in turn made it possible for Germans to commit acts of crimes against humanity and genocide. Something had to have, have turned the society and the people in it from thing A to thing B. And but for this constant drumbeat of not only Stryker, but also you know a gazillion of the things that you would have seen and heard and read in Nazi Germany, that this must be, if not all of the answer, it must be certainly the great part of the answer. And Stryker didn't help himself out at trial. Uh, he was the, the, his lawyer begged 
the, the tribunal to please let him go, to stop representing Yulia Stryker. And the tribunal said no. And Stryker hated his lawyer. His lawyer hated him. And Stryker is the, his, the world's worst witness giving testimony. Because under questioning, did you write these things? Oh, absolutely. Well, why did you write them? Well, because I believe them. So he didn't, there wasn't any attempt to deny that, no, I didn't say that, that somebody else did that. It was he, he, he took the responsibility for all of it. And it seems genuine, Stryker is a person who wrapped his entire life around anti-Semitism to the point where the other German defendants and the Nuremberg trials knew they needed to put as much space as possible between themselves and Stryker. And even before the war was over, most of the senior Nazis had concluded that Stryker is too radical even for them. But what does that even say about you? Or even the Nazis think you've gone too far. But they did, and he did. Uh, he's convicted. He is hanged. His last words before he falls through the trap in the gallows floor is an anti-Semitic slur. So when I started the COVID project, uh, this, uh, this degree and dissertation, what I wanted to look at was what happened next. So using Nuremberg as a platform, what happened with cases of incitement in the immediate post-war period, and what could I, I learn from that and learn about the ways that incitement is interpreted? But specifically what I decided to do was to look at cases where defendants were accused of using images as incitement to commit crimes against humanity. Not speeches, not written editorials, not anything, just a picture or pictures or moving pictures. Could those be considered on their face to be incitement to crime against humanity? And my data set was pretty easy because there's only been three of them anywhere. And all three occur in the immediate post-war period after, you know, after we win the war in 1945, after the Nuremberg trials are over, and after we start the program of denazification of Hitler's Reich. The two movies and one graphic artist that are the defendants in this case there are similarities and some differences. Uh, the gentleman here on the left-hand part of the screen here is named Philip Ruprecht. He was employed from the late 30s through the end of the Second World War as Julius Stryker's graphic artist. He drew thousands of images a lot like the one you see here. He used Jewish physical tropes and stereotypes the, what, is, what does the Jew look like? The Jew looks like this. We all know that. And, and he, he delves into st some, some just evil nonsense that's floating around in the 19th century. And this image I, I selected here for a couple of reasons because it's typical in other ways. The most incendiary of these shows a Jew, and usually they'll give him just a fake Jewish-sounding name, and he's somehow involved in the sexual or ritual torture of an Aryan German girl. And that's sort of the point, that if you keep up, 
you keep this up long enough, maybe it's your intent, maybe it's not, that the audience should turn, just accept this as normal, that this is the way that things are and the, thing, the way that things work. This is just what Jews do. So not only does Ruprecht draw these thousands of cartoons, there are also illustrated books, in one case an illustrated children's book, to make sure that, that children inside Nazi Germany understood what to look for and what the dangers of the Jews were and how the Jews were, were going to be out to get you and how the Jews controlled the money system and how Hitler was protecting Germany against this sort of insidious evil. Uh, Ruprecht is not... He, he's an interesting defendant for the German courts to prosecute. And, and let me stop there for a second. So what happens is Germany loses its sovereignty at the end of the war in May 1945. But once the American authorities realize the extent of the difficulty with denazification, in other words, how do you remove all the different sort of weeds of national socialism from German society, um, their first idea is to send out a questionnaire and you're supposed to list your contacts with Nazi Germany. The official captured records are held at a place in Berlin, the Berlin Document Center, and this thing starts to break down almost immediately when they realize that they're going to have to process 40 million forms and run these through document checks and try to determine if people have lied on their form or not. And we quickly as we can kick this over to these German legal proceedings. It's called a Spruchkammer. It's a hearing. Um, and German defendants will go in front of these courts and the court will, German judges and will, this German, they, they don't have, it's not a jury system. So German judges will decide, okay, have you lied? What were your contacts? What should your punishment be? And there's a range of punishments that you could get from five years in a labor camp through uh, loss of certain civic privileges or, or pay a fine. That's the process that Ruprecht goes through. We had the opportunity to prosecute him inside an American system and we didn't. We kicked it to the Germans. And the German court is, is, is trying to think through this stuff and try to figure out, well, what does it mean to be, what does incitement mean? What do you have to show? Do you have to prove the intent to incite? How do you prove that? Well, you can prove it maybe circumstantially, but Ruprecht, along with the other two defendants I looked at, what if you ask them, did you intend this to be inciting to people to kill, to kill and hurt Jews? His answer, of course, is, well, well no, I, I didn't mean that at all. I'm just drawing it, drawing a cartoon. It's innocent. If people misunderstood that, I, it's not. I, I didn't think that was going to happen. These are exaggerated things. Nobody was supposed to take these very seriously. Prove he's lying. You may know it or think you do. Proving it's a different matter. Is it necessary to show that he understood the outcome, the causality between what he did and the killing? Maybe yes, maybe no. That's unclear. And the courts are trying to wrestle with that. How would you prove it? Anyway, 
do you have to get somebody who stands up and says, but for look, reading this cartoon, I never would have hurt anybody? If so, they, that person, nobody ever found them because that testimony has never been offered in any court anywhere. Not just Germany, but in the larger uh, world of incitement. So it's evident, though, that the prosec German prosecutor and the German judge who's in charge of his hearing both despise Philip Ruprecht. Uh, they think he's little better than a pornographer. And they catch him in a bunch of stupid lies. So when his case does come to court, he doesn't have any friends, really, that are willing to testify for him. Um, I, I want to say, like, in one, one affidavit, I think it's, like, the, the, the neighbor of his sister signs an affidavit that says that, from what he knows, he, he's an okay guy. And that's pretty much it. So Ruprecht gets maxed out by the German court. He does, he does time in a labor camp. He loses the right to vote, loses the right to own a car, loses the right to practice anything in the arts. Uh, but, of course, the window for all of these three cases that I'm looking at only goes from 1946 through 1949. Because after the Federal Republic of Germany comes back in 1949, this process is done. And the Americans have washed their hands of it. So if you don't get them, especially the early part of that process, you, the, the, these kind of proceedings probably aren't going to happen at all. So that's Philip Ruprecht, but there's two more. Um, as opposed to Ruprecht, who's sort of a you know lower-level uh, guy with a pencil uh, and a sketch pad, one of the other defendants is... His name is Veit Harlan. He is a famous uh, big-time motion picture director and writer and even an actor. Uh, he's responsible for some of the most successful films that come out of the, the Third Reich. Um, mass spectacle. I mean, he's, he's, he, he knows his business. He's good at it. And in 1940, he premieres a film called Jud Sus. And Yudsus tells the story uh, from the 18th century about the kingdom of Württemberg. And in the story, what happens is the Duke of Württemberg, his wife is a spendthrift and loves jewels and fine things, and the kingdom is going into bankruptcy. So the Duke hires a Jew, a moneylender, to come into the kingdom and help sort out the finances. And the story goes on. And um, the main character, Yud Sus, worms his way in. He starts dressing like, you know, disguising his Jewishness and his Jewish appearance and Jewish clothing. And he starts dressing like other, you know, uh, non-Jewish Europeans at court. So he's hiding. And he's, he's, he's you know, that that's sort of fits with the stereotype. And he steals money, and he brings in more of these Asiatic Jews into the kingdom. Uh, he, he rapes a German girl, um, and eventually the population has become so outraged by the things that he does that he's, he's captured and he put, he put on trial, and then he reverts slowly back into the, the, the stereotypical Jew that he was beforehand. And he's condemned and hanged and put in an iron cage 
and at the very end of the film, there is this this declaration by the court officer that says, "We we promise that that we sh our descendants shall forever keep the Jews apart from German citizens." So, is this incitement, as the court considered? Well, incitement to do what? My common sense tells me, yeah. My lawyer part goes, I'm, I'm not so sure. Harlan's defense is, well, of course it's not incitement. I, I just worked from a, a, a screenplay. I didn't intend for, for, for anybody to view my film about Jude Suess in the 18th century. It's just a story. Why did, should anybody go out and harm people or work at Auschwitz-Birkenau or Dachau because they saw my movie? It's just light entertainment with the historical subject matter. Prove that I meant people to be killed. Can you? Don't know. And you get back to the same issue, okay? The, the, this, these two bridges that you may need to construct to go from what somebody says or does to a killing. Can you cross the first bridge, which is incitement? Excuse me, excuse, my bad, intent. Did they mean this thing to happen? How do you show it? You know, ob 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 objectively. That's unclear. But if you cross the first bridge, then you still have one bridge ahead of you. And the other bridge could be causation. Even if you intended the outcome, can you prove that there's a linkage between the thing that happens and the words or images that you created? And that becomes, again, very difficult here. Prove a German cinema goer. Watch this film. And it contributed either exclusively or even in substantial part to some action that they later take. W what are you going to have to do here? Are you going to have to find somebody who worked at Auschwitz-Birkenau, who worked in gas chamber two, into this post-war denazification proceeding, and testify that only because I saw this film in 1940 did I did I murder people? Again, it never happens. So the court in the Harlan case, uh, he, he goes through kind of a, 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 a rapid British denazification process. German criminal courts now remove it from denazification, and he faces two German criminal trials. At the first trial, and, and by the way, in German trial procedure, uh, here's how that goes. It's a little bit different. There are no juries, as I've said, and also you don't cross-examine witnesses. Prosecutor puts on their case, judge can ask witness questions. Defense puts on their case, calls witnesses, judge can ask questions. Prosecutor does not ask questions of defense witnesses, and the judge makes a decision. So in the case of the Harlan case, excuse me, in Harlan's case, uh, this process goes, uh, the judge hears the evidence, and the judge acquits him, and just he's free to go. Prosecutor appeals the case. The appeal is heard by the same judge that just acquitted him. 
and they, they actually do rerun a second trial because the British occupation authorities are insistent that, yes, you shall do this. And the same judge hears the same case again, and uh, this is going to be a huge surprise to you. Would you, would you want to guess what the verdict was? Anybody? Of course, he's, he goes free, and, and all his supporters are outside, and, and Harlan comes out, and he's a free man, and he goes on to make, I think, 11 really awful movies after the war that never go anywhere, but he doesn't suffer any civ civic or criminal penalties as a result of making the movie Yudsus in 1940. Um, so what do we learn from Harlan? Ah, uh, it's unclear. Does it help clarify what it means to incite by image? No, not really. Let's see if, 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 let's see if movie number three can help us. Uh, case number three concerns uh, Dr. Fritz Hippler. Uh, Hippler is a, was a member of the Hitler Youth. He is a, he's active in the, the SA, right, the, the brown shirt movement. Uh, he is an officer in the SS, but not really a very good one. And he's sort of, you know, they, he's just, he's an officer because he's in different ministries. He works in the film department inside the Third Reich, makes a very brief documentary film about the 1940 campaign. And then he's tasked by Josef Goebbels, the head of the propaganda ministry, to make another film that comes, it's the, the, the initial footage is shot in 1939 after the end of the Polish campaign. Movie comes out in 1940. Movie is Der Ewige Jude, this. It is a shot in a documentary, sort of a newsreel fashion. So if you remember the way that newsreels used to look and think of that sort of lighting and voiceover and that sort of, you know, the way the scenes get cut, it's exactly the same thing. And Der Ewige Jude is supposed to show German theater goers the danger that the Jews represent. Der Ewige Jude means the eternal Jew. That the poison that the Jews bring to German society goes back you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years that they've always been this way. And without kind of giving you sort of a, a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of the movie, uh, let, let me move ahead to what's perhaps the most memorable image from it. Prior to uh, the, actually the, the first scene is the one on the right bottom. Uh, it is a map that shows the spread of Jewish contamination from somewhere in Central Asia across Europe, and as actually, this, this is just a still photo, but you, the, the, it goes beyond Europe and puts its tentacles into the other parts of, of the planet, so North and South America. Keeping with that theme, and Hip, Hippler directed the film, he cut it, uh, put it, edited it, put it together, uh, as well as worked on the screenplay. He has a sort of a jump shot into bags of grain that have been harvested by, you know, hardworking Aryan German farmers. And suddenly rats appear teeming around and inside and outside the bags of grain. Um, it's a metaphor. It's a pretty powerful metaphor. And 
you know, the, 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 for their purposes, the reason this works so well is you can let the audience's mind do the work for you. Because the question that the narrator doesn't have to ask after you have shown this spread of, of Jewish contagion, and now you've shown the grain and the rats, is what are you supposed to do with rats that, that, that contaminate the grain? I don't have to ask you that, because your mind's already going to go there. And I don't have to give you the answer, which is you, you exterminate them. If Jews are rats, rats are in amongst the German population in an almost biologic sense, which is one of the other themes of the film. What are you supposed to do about that? You kill them. All of them. You get rid of them. So whereas Harlan's film is more subtle in terms of message, Hitler's is crude because Hitler is not as good as Harlan. Hitler is, is not as, as, as clever. It's more in your face. So if you're trying to figure out can images, moving pictures, incite crimes against humanity, I think I would probably start with this as my first exhibit. But the difficulty that I'm sure you can appreciate is crossing those two bridges again. Can you prove that Fritz Hippler intended extermination as an outcome on the basis of the movie that you see? Because his version of this is he, didn't he wasn't even involved in this barely. He was just shooting some documentary footage. He didn't even know they were making a movie, and he didn't know how his, his name got on it, but he didn't, he didn't do that. Um, I did find out that he was a huge liar because deep within like this German trial record, uh, there's a document where he's running a focus group before the movie comes out of senior members of different parts of the Nazi state. And their objective is, how do you make this film more anti-Semitic? So he's getting written feedback. I mean, that's, it's in the, this document. Well, you know, you need to make sure that you, you point out like how, how nasty Jews are and how, how noble Germans are. And you need to close this film, and he does, with a scene from Hit, one of Hitler's speeches um, in 1939, where, in January 39, where Hitler says, if war comes, it will not mean the end of the German race, it will rather mean the extermination, using the German, the, exactly the right word, of, of, of the Jewish race in Europe. That's how, that's how Hitler ends the movie. So if you're trying to do the little the bridge thing, right, can you prove that Hitler intended this extermination as an outcome? I think you can probably get pretty close to it. It's still a bit subjective, but then you get to bridge two. Can you prove that, if you need to, that there is a cause and effect relationship between this vile, hate-filled visual imagery and people actually carrying out the Holocaust? I, I think you have a problem. And the German courts are sort of in the same business. You would almost expect them to do a complete whitewash over their, their, their own people that are committing these crimes, but, but I didn't find that that was true at the level of prosecution or in, the, in these Spruchkammer courts. They just couldn't figure out a way to do it. 
And I think one of the things with incitement law as it's developed since 1945 and 1946 is we're still struggling with those same two bridges. If I have somebody who, who is, I'm certain, is inciting pick a felony, because you can incite, that's a crime, every statute, to include the military statute, has that big word intent right there in the wording. I must prove that you intended the thing to happen. That's hard. And I can prosecute it just by you doing it. I don't have to connect to the other bridge if I'm prosecuting it just in, in one, one particular way. But if I want to link it to a crime against humanity, I, I'm really going to have to try to cross that second bridge. Can you show the linkage between the thing that was said or the thing that was shown and, 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 a, and a murder? A lot of murders. Million murders. That's a problem. And in 2022, one of the issues is, too, that we're still working with, unfortunately, software that was designed in 1945 and 1946. So the law itself hasn't changed, even though the mechanisms have changed completely, because the Ruprex, the Harlan, and the Hitlers of the world are all essentially working at the direction of the Nazi state. You can run a wiring diagram that shows, say, there's a single point here, and, and then you've got different aspects of German incitement. Sure, but it's state-controlled, state-run, state-financed. What if that's not the kind of incitement that we're talking about anymore? What if we've gone beyond the, the, something that you could even imagine in Nuremberg and the idea that you would have this sort of a thing not on an official state level, but on a private level? Now what do you do? So that's what I wanted to look at. I guess the question for both of you really to discuss, is this just Victor's justice um, that we won and so we're gonna make us look like we're gonna do some prosecutions and then let it die off? So. Oh, all right. Um, I think I mean, it's an excellent question, and um, it's sort of the, the central concern of the post-war, the Nuremberg trials, the war crimes trials in general. Um, I think that in many ways, this is less a case of Victor's justice and more uh, the uncomfortable reality that in the aftermath of the war, the world's governments, it's the Western militaries, the Allied powers, were not particularly comfortable with the implications of all of this, that the United States military was concerned that by creating a regime in which individual soldiers could face international prosecution for crimes committed during wartime, that their soldiers would be subject to these same sorts of tribunals. Um, they are very hesitant and only very late in the process to begin preparing prosecutions for low-level German war criminals. The Nuremberg trials are aimed at high-level criminals Individual German soldiers, the, the United States military does not uh, prepare or present uh, accusations or allegations against, against these low-level um, perpetrators until, until they're essentially forced to in 1945. Um, they abandon these low-level trials uh, about as quickly as they can. By 1953, it's no longer going on. Anyone who had been committed, uh, who had been convicted of one of these kind of crimes is eligible for parole. Many of them are released. 
Uh, and in one of the lesser known episodes of the war, Joachim Piper, uh, who murders or is responsible for the, the troops that murder over 100 Americans near Malmody, um, will, will, you know, his, he and his men will not hang for this. They will, they will ultimately be paroled. Um, and his case and the case of the SS men who conducted this massacre will become a minor cause celeb in the United States where uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy and some of the people of his ilk will petition for his release and will claim that the United States military tortured a confession out of them. Um, so this sort of ambivalence towards trying war criminals of whatever stripe is really sort of deeply embedded uh, in many of the military establishments in the West, in the United States, no less than anyone else. Uh, there are a number of army officers, I think, that would not have tried any of these low-level criminals if they had had their way. Mark, you being common, are you? Yeah, my, my strategy was to let Ben go first so I could think of something smart to say. <laughs> and that hasn't happened. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 what he said is exactly, I think, correct. So the problem with these sort of cases with incitement in my, in what I was speaking about in war crimes is that without the pressure of a, or of a losing war, without defendants who are in hand, no one is going to be serious about prosecuting war crimes on a large scale. Uh, there are many disincentives, institutional disincentives for, for prosecuting the crimes. There are political pressures that, that bear, that, that, that resist uh, justice. For example, if we send the clock forward to the 1960s and we start talking about me lie, out of the hundreds of people in two full infantry companies that committed massacres at My Lai 4 and My Lai 1. We put two, a lieutenant, a captain, and then briefly a colonel on trial. None of the killers, the people who mutilated and, and, and murdered women and children, are, are tried for what they did. They're not even barred from reenlistment. We just let them go because the pressure is not to do it, and there's also resources issues. I mean, how many trials are you really gonna to wanna to have? You could, you could probably get over most of those if you really want to, but again, the disincentives mean that most times the authorities really don't wanna. It's gonna give your unit a bad name. When the, the thing with Patton and his diary, where he's deliberately concealing murders of, of, of prisoners, uh, he, he doesn't want to be the person who raises his hand and says, oh, by the way, people under my command murdered, you know, 50 German prisoners. That, that's a bad career move. So it's almost, you, you get these unicorns that pop up periodically where you, you hold, do hold people accountable for, for war crimes and crimes against humanity, but it doesn't happen often. Okay, thank you. Any questions, please? And thank you, Tom, for waiting. Okay. <laughs> my, my reputation precedes me. I can see that. Uh, this is a question for, uh, for uh, Ben Schneider. And uh, this is about the uh, Mamedi uh, massacre, which has come up a couple of times uh, already. Uh, this is uh, Piper's uh, uh, massacre, SS troops uh, capture, or I guess an American, uh, my recollection of it is that an American, whole American company had surrendered, and then Piper massacred them. <clears throat> 
but, but the question is, uh, uh, were a lot of these uh, prisoner executions by Americans that you describe uh, uh, in the minds of those soldiers in retribution for the Maumee massacre, or is it a bunch of different episodes for a bunch of different uh, very local uh, motives? Uh, that's a great question. So I actually just presented a paper on precisely this topic. Um, so it, it's complicated. The way that the Army will interpret a lot of these kinds of killings uh, is as a response to Malmody and in reprisal for German atrocities. And there is a certain degree of truth to that. The Malmody massacre creates a space where these kind of activities can be undertaken uh, and individuals do not have to fear a punishment from higher command. We have a number of high-ranking officers who are recorded as by aides or others saying essentially after Malmody that they are not going to pursue criminal charges against anyone who kills German prisoners, in some cases civilians, uh, as a result of the Malmody massacre. Uh, the problem, of course, with Malmody, or with, uh, I, I alluded to briefly, the, uh, the reprisals that take place at Dachau, is that these kinds of reprisals are not uniform or organized. They're very much the product of individuals and individual units. So you have the question of why it is that some people engage in these activities and other people do not, even sometimes within the same units, right? Uh, the incident that I described near Chinon in Belgium, right, there is this one particular battalion commander who feels very heavily that he should be shooting German prisoners, and this is an appropriate response from Malmody. Uh, uh, Burnett Miller and the other men under his command do not necessarily feel the same way about it. And so he's in a position of authority. Other people in similar authority do not undertake these kinds of killings and reprisals. The 11th Armored Division has a specific reaction here that is not necessarily shared uniformly. So the question we have to ask is, why them but not others? Why is it that the only case of reprisal killings against concentration camp guards seems to be loca uh, localized at Dachau and in the immediate area around Dachau? Right? Why are there not similar uh, retaliations at Buchenwald, at Bergen-Belsen? Why is it that it's only in this place at this time by these particular units? And that's a harder question to answer. There is some relation clearly to the inciting incidents, but there's also something that has to do with the individuals, with the particular commanders, with the culture of the units that are involved in this. Uh, I would suggest briefly, with not, without veering off into sort of an entire side tangent here, that much of this has to do with a small subset of soldiers who exist in any army and at any time who are particularly violent, who are particularly inclined towards violence in an extra-legal fashion, and who use these incidents as opportunities to take out that desire for violence against unarmed and defenseless people. So I hope that answers your question. Maybe I'm coming out of left field someplace. You talked about shooting prisoners. You talked about incitement. But everything I hear now about Ukraine is killing civilians, bombing apartment buildings, tying their hands behind their back, shooting them in the head. Other than the shooting in the head, sounds a heck of a lot like what the Union Army did to Vicksburg. Is that a war crime? Or is that, like I said, out in left field? Is, is that just the press talking about war crimes? I, I, yeah, I'm going to hit the, I'm going to, bravely kick this over to Ben because um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not, a, I'm not a Civil War person so I'm not really sure what you mean with with Vicksburg are you talking about the 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 surrounding of the city or because because nothing in or out star them out 
kill the people. What, well, I think is just if I'm prosecuting a murder case, so intense part of murder is is the intent of the Union Army to 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 kill the citizens of Vicksburg. I, I'm I'm asking. I, I would guess no. I think it's probably meant to put pressure on the citizens of Vicksburg and strain Confederate resources. So I think you'd have difficult time classifying it as either. A war crime, or certainly not a crime against humanity, especially given the rules that existed at the time in 1863 when, when Vicksburg was attacked. Uh, I don't know. I, I, so I, I can actually speak to that in, in more detail. So uh, one of the one of the things that I alluded to at the beginning here is that part of the reason that the army has so much trouble during the Second World War is that the system of military justice that they have in place is not designed to deal with situations like these, and that is. Uh, not some oversight. The Army just hasn't forgotten to set up a military justice system. It's that the laws of war that exist prior to World War II, especially prior to Nuremberg, are very different than what we would think of. And so in the Civil War, right, the United States Army operates under something that's uh, General Orders 100, uh, colloquially, colloquially known as the Lieber Code. And Lieber carves out in this, this is the first modern military legal code, carves out large exceptions in conduct for uh, military necessity. The concept of a war crime, as we think about it now, where someone commits a crime and is then put on trial for said crime, where there is evidence presented in all of this, is not a normal part of the 19th century or even the pre-Second World War military justice system. There are exceptional cases, uh, the commandant of Andersonville Prison, for instance, who were put on trial for this, but this is an exceptional uh, occurrence. The way in which military justice works and which punishment for war crimes occurs prior to really 1940 is through reprisal, right? You engage in conduct that your opponent believes falls outside the laws and customs of war. They will write a little letter to you saying that you've engaged in this conduct, you've engaged in cruel or inhumane treatment, you have violated uh, the law, you've violated your honor, what are you going to do to make this right? If you don't, do something, if you don't punish the guys responsible for this, we are going to execute X number of your prisoners, or we are going to refuse to take quarter in the next battle, etc., etc. So when the siege is laid on Vicksburg, that may well be, you know, if you're starving civilians or if you're trying to, to starve a city into submission, it's entirely possible that that may be seen as something that is outside the laws and customs of war. But there's no trial to be had for that. You have to get your satisfaction on the battlefield or against uh, the other prisoners. There's this delicate balance that the Union and Confederacy will engage in in determining what conduct falls within or without sort of these norms and customs. And as the war goes on, as you get into 1863, 64, and 65, that standard will degenerate on both sides. Confederate troops will execute out of hand uh, USCT troops. They will execute white officers who are in charge of black soldiers on the idea that this is a servile insurrection, right? And so there is, again, as the war goes on, it gets more and more brutal, and the question then is how do you keep the balance to keep it from spiraling out? And so that is the challenge that you identify. Well, and one of the things with the Lieber Code, too, is it is General Order 100. It is not part of the Articles of War. So if, for example, you violate the Lieber Code, the punishment is under the Articles of War, you can be charged with, with disobeying a general order not with the specifics of the what the order contains. 
so it, it gives it goes back again to a system which I think had, a, especially as we get closer to the World War II period, had a hard time imagining the kinds of things that were going to go on for, for a lot of good reasons. That the rules didn't, the, the rules are still trying to catch up, and, you know, war goes where war wants to go. So, more are you, is that a war crime? Uh, I... I would argue, yes, it probably is in terms of like the sort of targets that which are prohibited by law. And if, if I could add too on that, uh, the difference between say a civil war siege like Vicksburg or Atlanta is the targeting is at the combats. They're going after the artillery emplacements, the troop emplacements. Now those are in front of buildings, so there is going to be some collateral damage, but it is not aiming at the residents or the population, as I think Mark had said, you know, it's not purposely trying to kill the civilians. Um, outside of Atlanta, uh, when that's there, when civilians wanted to leave the city of Atlanta, they were allowed out and taken right to Confederate lines because the Union Army didn't want to feed them. That was the Confederates' problem, it's your people, and it takes them in there. But they're not purposely targeting civilians. And I think that's the big difference between that and the modern case that you're talking about, Mario. Uh, question for Dr. Hull, I believe. Um, probably, I, I'm just speculating here, probably a lot of Nazi war criminals got away through the rat line and avoided prosecution. Uh, did the U.S. or the Allies do anything to uh, interdict the rat line and try to count, capture uh, some, uh, some of the escapees? Short answer is going to be no. Uh, the rat line, some did get away. Uh, the worry, for example, one of the reasons that we have Barton Bormann who's tried in absentia at Nuremberg is the thought that he had escaped to South America. He, he didn't. He was killed. He'd been killed. Uh, it operated just, I think, outside the perception of, of the Americans and the British and it wasn't really considered, I think, that criminal, or excuse me, that critical of a thing, especially right in the aftermath of the Second World War. Mengele got out through a rat line to South America. Uh, Eric Priebke was another guy that got out. Uh, but we're talking probably in terms of hundreds of people. Uh, the Eichmann would, would be maybe the, the, the highest profile guy that got out that way, but we had most of them, most of the survivors. And I think it was almost written off as, as it, those are the sort of people that are operating outside the margins. So short answer, no, we didn't, we didn't do much to interdict it. But in, and in some cases actively got some of these. <laughs> very very true. So, so especially like Operation Paperclip, and there was another one, where we're actively recruiting Nazi help in uh, medicine and aerospace engineering and rocketry and other fields where we're bringing over people that we know to have been war criminals. Uh, people, for example, that came out of the doctor's trial at Nuremberg who had experimented on, on just the most gruesome e medical experiments you can conceive, and we brought them over to the U.S. as, as experts. It, it's... Th there, there were some dirty hands there. Okay, I think we have time for about one more question. 
Palmer Harris. Uh, it seems intent and crimes against humanity. Uh, there's been accusations leveled at Harris. There seems to be some evidence that the intent and crimes against humanity when he leveled Hamburg, uh, excuse me, Nuremberg and Dresden. Uh, but it seems the populations tend to accept his idea to just eradicate some of these cities. I'd like to know your comment on the intent and the crimes against humanity as proposed by him. Well, I'll take the intent if you want to take the crimes against humanity. Sure. <laughs> uh, so I think it's, um, it's absolutely clear what Palmer Harris's intent is. He, he says explicitly, uh, relatively early in the war, we need to stop telling the British people that we're trying to hit factories. We're not trying to hit factories. We're trying to incinerate populations. The goal of the bombing campaign here, we can't target, we can't do strategic, so we are going to turn German cities to ash along with everybody who's inside of them, uh, and this will break their will to fight. Uh, the Brits get there earlier by 44, 45. The, the Americans do make a valiant effort to try to keep more targeted bombings. The technology at the time is not conducive to that. Um, but, you know, Curtis LeMay, who organizes the firebombing of Tokyo and incinerates 100,000 people, will say very explicitly, uh, if this war had gone the other way, we would all been, have been in front of a judge, that, that these would have been considered violations of the laws of war uh, and perhaps crimes against humanity, though that's a, a separate legal category. The, the <coughs> unwillingness or the inability to engage in sort of targeted bombing of specifically military or strategic targets is pretty egregious, um, and the the absolute unwillingness to consider sort of proportionality, which is one of the key parts of making co uh, collateral damage legally acceptable. There's there's no proportional here. They're going to annihilate uh, these cities. So, to the crimes against humanity, I think it's important to realize that prior to the Nuremberg Charter in 1945, there is no such thing as international criminal law. There is no forum, there's no anything to prosecute a crime against humanity, war crimes, crimes against peace. Nobody's ever done it outside a national system. So even if you'd concluded that Bomber Harris had violated the rules, your best outcome, which is unrealistic, would have been him to have been charged by his own country. And the charge sheet would be, you know, murder times, let's say, you know, 40,000 citizens in Hamburg or 35,000 in Leipzig or, or wherever. That, that's not going to happen. And nobody did that. We didn't do it. The British didn't do it. The only person who's ever been convicted for aerial bombardment was a Luftwaffe general convicted by a Yugoslav court for the bombing of Belgrade in, in 1941. One guy. In, in a very freak post-war thing. Because nobody wants, it's one of the reasons too that at Nuremberg we didn't charge the Germans with war crimes by strategic bombardment. Because as soon as you do that, the next question is gonna be, really, shall we discuss who bombed what, where, and when? And we didn't wanna have that discussion. One other interesting thing about it, at the end of the war, every other major British commander is raised in the peerage 
You know, he's rated because he's the only one who's not, and I don't think he gets his uh, a statue until the early 2000s. Um, so there's a discomfort by the British uh, population and government about his role. Um, I do want to, before we end this, um, just do a quick ad for next month. Uh, Dr. Ethan Rafuse will be talking on hybrid war in the Shenandoah Valley uh, in 1864. Uh, also, if you are interested in either of these uh, fine gentlemen's uh, biographies or more of what they're researching, uh, the Department of Military History now has a podcast up, uh, actually has two podcast channels. Uh, one's called Broad Gauge Gossips, uh, which is a, a 15 or 20 minute one that talks about their backgrounds, what they're researching, and then we have history topics, uh, which is a confused heap of facts. Uh, Ambrose Pierce says that history is just a confused heap of facts without historians. So. Uh, if you're interested, both of them have podcasts up that talk a little bit more about their background uh, and their subjects. So uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming out here and please one more uh, round of applause for both of our presenters today. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.